John Roderick. We speak to you from our present, which we can only assume is your distant past, the turbulent time that was the early 21st century. Fearing the great cataclysm that will surely befall our civilization, we began this monumental reference of strange and obscure human knowledge. These recordings represent our attempt to compile and preserve wonders and esoterica that would otherwise be lost. So whether you're listening from an advanced civilization or have just reinvented the technology to decrypt our transmissions, this is our legacy to you. This is our time capsule. This is the Omnibus. have accessed entry 1368.ez2046, certificate number 27330, Union Dixie. I'd say until the Dixie Chicks changed their name last year, yeah. it had not occurred to me that the word Dixie was historically freighted in the same way that the associated culture, you know, all the statues we were seeing come down obviously were. Right. But you, the word Dixie itself. Yeah. Mostly, well, mostly because I would never use it in any context. How, when would you even say? You could say that you wished you were down in, well, but you probably never have wished you were down in Dixie. Mm, I don't know. I mean, maybe if I'm like trying to catch a flight to an event in Atlanta and I'm snowed in in O'Hare. You're like, I'm I just would not, trying to get to Dixie. I would not pick up a banjo and sing a little <laughs> ditty about it. So what is the derivation of Dixie? I don't, I, I, weirdly, I have no idea. It's disputed. Uh, it's, um, there's a popular folk etymology that it's named for like a, a New York farmer named John Dixie, who, um, I think he gathered a lot of freed slaves to his, to his, uh, spread and, uh, you know, either they gave them land or they worked his farm or something to the degree that people in the North started referring to, you know, Dixie as a kind of a su little Southern Island, a little Southern enclave. In New York. Yeah. Unfortunately, there's no evidence that this guy ever existed. And then that extended then it like. Isn't that weird? Reciprocated back to Dixie itself. It seems insane. And. It must be very early. It must be like Dutch, Dutch era New York. Right. Oh, I see. Uh, but yeah, that, that doesn't make any sense. And even though like Ripley's believe it or not printed that in the thirties, I guess there's no, he that, doesn't, he doesn't exist. That guy anywhere doesn't else. Exist. He's not attested. It seems pretty clear that there's another folk etymology that it comes from the French dis like 10 yeah. after a, um, uh, like a French coin that circulated around new Orleans in the early American period. Um, right. like, and maybe there is some evidence that those notes were called Dixies by English speakers. But the most obvious etymology does seem to be the most likely one, which is it just comes from the Mason-Dixon line. Oh, named after Dixon. Yeah, I think yeah, Jeremiah Dixon or, you know, whoever the, the Southern surveyor was. Yeah. Now, Al although one problem with that is we do not call the North Macy. No. Although it does have quite a few Macy's. Fewer than, fewer fewer than, than five years ago. Right. 
<laughs> it has fewer gimbals than Macy's for sure. Yeah, it seems that now that now that you say Mason Dixon line, it seems only natural it would be called that. But when did the South start to be called Dixie? Uh, I think it's 19th century, like earliest attestation of Dixie. The funny thing is if you look up Dixie and Merriam-Webster today, the number one definition is a brand name of small paper cup. Oh, a Dixie cup. <laughs> right. Is that related? Do Dixie cups come from, from uh, Georgia Pacific in, uh, in Atlanta? The Dixie Cup was invented in 1908 in uh, by a New England inventor. Oh. Lawrence Llewellyn, like a Boston lawyer who was just wanted more sterile. He was tired of people uh, dipping a ladle into a rain barrel or well and passing it around. Boy, I am too. I hate that. Yeah. Don't you hate that when you're at the, I'm like, the, hey. the church sociable? I'm like, hey, get your, get your dipper out of the rain barrel. I go to the car and I get my own ladle. Yeah. Yeah, yeah clean ladle. Yeah, my own clean ladle. It's it's wrapped in plastic like a hotel ladle when you check into your room. Uh, so, but you know, as we'll see, the you know, using the word Dixie for the South, uh, it's not purely regional. Like the song and the idea of Dixie have kind of had a an America wide acceptance that's kind of ebbed and flowed over time. Today, we're definitely in an ebb, and it's probably not coming back because when do you even hear the word? I guess Alabama is still officially the heart of Dixie. Yeah. And, but I don't, when do you even hear people refer, like, is it in, if you were, would it be in local tourist board branding in the South? Well, I, I, one of the things that I think we're about to discover in the American culture wars are how much the South is going to brand slash rebrand itself and whether, I mean, it, it absolutely could decide, I mean, the South collectively could decide. Like, like they do. <laughs> could decide. They'll call a convention. That Dixie's where where it's happening again. I mean, I, I just I just uh, read a big long article on Stone Mountain and how they're trying to, they're trying to figure out a way to smooth the edges of Stone Mountain to make it not quite so. Could there be a civil rights theme, but not enough to offend like 90% of our visitors? Yeah, right. I mean, it, there's no way that you can put uh, like Nat Turner up on Stone Mountain. For one thing, he would hate it. <laughs> like you His can't, ghost will haunt you forever. You can't even really take the flags down, right? I mean, the whole point of Stone Mountain is what it is to celebrate the Confederacy. And so there is, it's not like take a, take the statue of Robert E. Lee down in front of the courthouse. It's like literally the most popular tourist location in Georgia and so what are they, so there's like a little, they're, they're like, well, we put a kiosk up here that has, that tells it, you know, the other side, <laughs> um, but also, you know, we still have rallies, like torchlight rallies in the middle of the night here. So the last time this happened, the South really doubled down yeah. and dug in That's and, kind like, of their, and their, put up their new, tendency. So today it could be like, we're going to start saying Dixie again. I yeah. think no one has said in 50 years. Well, yeah. Start saying Dixie or maybe, I mean, when the, when they're. When the secession movement, rather the succession movement in the South, really takes, do you think it's going to be secession or succession? Yeah, I wonder. I think it'll be succession. No, secession. What will succeed the secession? I guess. Um, Yeah, I think I think there's probably. I mean, if the state of Alaska keeps threatening to become its own country, a state that could not survive for one minute without government subsidies. Uh, that's also true of the entire southern United States, but they 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 could make you know they could make another case for 
for independence down there. And what would they call it? United States of Dixie? The You don't what? want you don't want Dixie. Yeah. Like there it sounds like the nation of yesterday. I do believe in this story about the about Dix being um uh Deese, the the You the, like it? The the New Orleans ten 10 franc note because rather you, than Mason Dixon. Cause you would say Dixieland for the part of the, the part of the country that used these French notes. That used these French notes. Right. Oh, I, by the way, I got the story of the New York guy wrong. This was so early in the, the history of Manhattan Island that slavery was still legal. Oh. So these were slaves working Mr. Dixie's land. And when they got sold South, they would tell stories about being in Dixieland. But that doesn't make sense because then it's like people having nostalgia. It's Southern people having nostalgia for the North, yeah, the, which, which they call Dixieland. So the slaves that were that were moving South had, were reminiscing. They wished they were in Boy, Dixie. Boy, I wish I was in Dixie, part of Upper Manhattan, <laughs> the, the farms of, uh, of Upper Manhattan. That's funny. Maybe not too far from where uh, like black neighborhoods like Harlem are today. They're, they're nostalgic for it in, the, in this weird, untrue story. The Mason-Dixon line... Is like a uh, is like a pre-revolution, a colonial era survey line. Yeah, between between the north and the south. Between you know, on the coast, it's Maryland and Pennsylvania, and Delaware, and so local surveyors were hired by those colonies, right? To, right to divide the to draw the line. You're you're not liking Mason. So here's the thing. I do I do like that too. It's hard to it's hard to choose. The word Dixie seems to first be used to mean the Southern United States. In uh, around the time the song appears, oh, in 1859, so the song is what brings it to a wider audience. Oh, um, in a way, it it maybe is irrelevant because because the song could have been like they could have called it like you know uh, yeah pur- purple people eater. I guess it just occurred to me that today the time we most where. hear the word Dixieland is talking about jazz, talking oh about like the influential early musicians, almost all African American. And that's a very New Orleans yeah. vibe, right? Dixieland jazz is not coming out of South Carolina. So you're going to stick with your um, French banknotes theory? Yeah, I'm going to that. You know what? I'm planting a flag there. The Roderick theory. I'm planting. I don't know what flag I'm planting there. <laughs> I'm going to plant a flag. There. Well, Stone Mountain's getting rid of some, maybe. So <laughs> not really. You, you can get some in surplus. Uh, if if the name was actually came to public attention in 1859. It was never claimed to have been coined there by Daniel Decatur Emmett, the Ohio-born musician who wrote the song Dixie for uh, a minstrel show performing in New York City in April of 1859. So he was from Ohio. The show was in in um, in New York. So this is a kind of orientalizing of the South by Northerners. Which you can absolutely see in the lyrics, especially like if you take a look at the early lyrics. I mean, uh, so we should get this out of the way at first. This was absolutely not just a minstrel show, but like a descendant of the first minstrel show. Daniel Decatur Emmett founded Virginia, the Virginia Minstrels in 1843. Now, this was not the first time that a white performer had put um, cork, burnt cork on his face and done like that, an, an offensive dialect. That was Othello. <laughs> <laughs> uh, in the, you know, in the U.S., it dates back to like a popular character called Jim Crow, like the, uh, you know, our term Jim Crow for the, for the post-war South, for the 20th century South. Started when? with when? A, It's a 19th century term for a guy that would, a performer that would call himself oh, Jim, Jim Crow. Crows being black birds. It's an insulting way to refer to his, his fake 
slave identity. It only goes back to the 19th century. I would assume that this was part of the American experience to the to the 17th century. You got to have a lot of you, know, you got to have a lot of uh, it feels artistic like, vision to actually go burn the cork and everything. But it seems like a Caribbean thing to me. Like it it feels like a Barbados um the original Jim Crow, and we may have covered some of this in our, I mean, this is not our first time discussing America's our ar- first rodeo. ugly legacy of blackface <laughs> minstrelsy, um, which for the record, we are still against. I am also personally against it, um, in addition to my uh, being against it as part of this corporation. Thomas Dartmouth, oh, me too, I, I hasten to add. Thomas Thomas Dartmouth Rice was a Lower East Side boy who uh, was a performer who his signature traveling uh, music and dance act was to blacken up his face and call himself Jim Crow and uh, basing it on, I think, slave tales of kind of a trickster Br'er Rabbit oh, right, type right. character. And so he would sing what he thought of as traditional slave songs. You know, as the minstrel tradition went forward, it's it's really disputed, like how much authentic uh, slave culture uh, oh. is represented by the minstrel tradition. It seems to me if the songs are being written in Ohio, that's the issue written in New York by Ohio born <laughs> people. It's a lot of, it's a lot of white people imagining what white audiences will think it's funny. Uh, if, um, if these black characters do, which you'll be shocked to hear is not super enlightened in right. the 1850s. So, uh, and, and they, they don't know anything about a lot of them don't have any contact with the South. They don't know what the authentic, culture traditions even are so they're drawing stuff more from the northern music they know you know the the folk and and appalachian music of the of northern people at that time what's interesting is that you know the the culture of west africa um as it was imported to the united states i mean a lot of work was done to eradicate it um and so what 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 would be authentic is also what would be the authentic music and experience of this, the the enslaved populations is also going to be a kind of a mishmash of collision of of different cultures and influences and who can <clears throat> like I could see where it's like the word Dixie itself it's being conjured and developed in real time with its opposite. And, you know, it's being, it's actually being made in a crucible where the mockery of it is as inchoate as the thing itself. Sure. And, you know, stuff maybe just arising from the whole cloth among these just dispossessed little plantation populations. Right. Um, they'll have, and you know, they'll have some cultural memory of their homeland. And there is a lot of research going into, you know, what kinds of call and response forms or what kinds of games or folk stories actually do date back to Dahomean peoples. But yeah, it's super hard to know because of all the work, as you say, that was put into just severing that bond and ending that culture. Right. I mean, it's the real answer to, well, why isn't there a white history month? You know, there is... <laughs> It would have to be a dumber voice, I think, Go ahead. saying that. Try it again. I don't want to see that on Omnibus out of context. <laughs> why, why isn't there a white history month? Because, you know, there are obviously like, there is Irish heritage days and Italian heritage. You know, there are all these observances for different kinds of European heritage. It's just that that's not available to African-American populations because 
they were violently uprooted from those ethnic ethnic traditions and kind and, of a, a new one forged right. against their will. Five hundred traditions all all put through a sieve and uh, and turned into one, and probably mixed with, under pressure. Yeah, and mixed with their you know the the white Southern influences around them. Poor Scots Irish around them playing those damn banjos. All the banjos. I God. guess I guess banjo is an African word. Is there are there banjo like instruments from the African continent? Maybe. Yeah, stringed instruments. You know, the history of stringed instruments seems like a an omnibus topic. Okay. Let's not get into it here. Well, by the time you hear this, we'll already have done it. So please oh, sure. cross reference here the history of stringed instruments. But Emmett was the first one to you know, take the Jim Crow innovation that white audiences just love to yuck it up at fake um, black uh, kind of dial. And, you know, we, we, you know, to the degree, maybe you admire the, the, the musical chops and the dancing of these fake per- black performers and the, you know, the mischievous stories they tell, but also it's a degree of buffoonery, you know, white audiences laughing and feeling superior at the, at the dialect and the pratfalls. And the, the Creole dialect would have been something that, or, or rather Creole dialects would have been small C um, would have been something that, that any audience would recognize from personal experience, just because the Americas and it's, and our, um, you know, the, the cross pollinization of all of the, the Caribbean and South America. And I mean, it would have, it wouldn't have been unfamiliar to them to hear, uh, to hear a kind of Creole. That said, I don't but, know how much of this dialect was accurate. Yeah, right. That's you know, it's, the thing. it's some it, guy in it's some guy in Ohio's impression of how um, enslaved black people might be talking in in Georgia today. It would have had the it would have had a recognizable lilt, but then it's it would be a blank slate in terms of trying to make it comedic. And it's a pre mass media age. You know, a lot of these people, you know, even if they had heard. Um, black workers in the north speak they wouldn't know what the southern dialect was like this would be a this would be another example of a thing i want to talk to noam chomsky about but whether or not if you ever run into him and i'm and, pull, well, pull him out uh, from behind a plant in a movie well, theater line where, where he's huddled with marshall McLuhan. <laughs> when i see him again is what i should say uh yeah like what the the form the linguistic form, the grammatical form, and I'm sure there are future links listening who this is their special area of study and they're going to write you a, an email about it. They're excited. But the way that Creole's, like Creole grammar takes shape, is it a universal, anytime you get, you know, anytime a, a language of, like arises in a Creole fashion. Like are there certain kinds of changes that often happen first and then second? And- yeah. Is it, is it, is it related to, is it related more to the, to the way that the two languages collide, or is it something intrinsic to the development of a Creole language that that it, that it has certain touch touch points and certain sort of tones? Let's just say that these early blackface minstrels would not have cared less. I see. Yes. All right. <laughs> Moving right along. But you're but you're right. <laughs> but it just would not have occurred to Dan Emmett, who who assembles the first group of singers and dancers and joke tellers, puts them in burnt cork. And suddenly the minstrel show is a thing where you're not just seeing a bunch of acts, one of whom is a guy, you know, acting uh, as a as a black character in Negro dialect. Now you're seeing a whole group of them singing and dancing, and that's the show. That's the whole that's show. That's the genre. Oh, I had no idea that was true. I always thought a I always thought a minstrel show was always a component of a larger vaudeville 
enterprise. Well, this predates vaudeville. I mean, vaudeville came to incorporate minstrel act because just because those jokes and uh, dance and song forms were so deep in the DNA. But before that, no, you'd go see a minstrel show and it would just be a troupe of... Uh, it was like a drag show. A dozen or a couple dozen of these guys, exactly. Uh, well, with a few differences. <laughs> but doing kind of interpolated skits, sketches, and songs, and dances. In 1859, uh, Emmett's troupe, the Bryant's Minstrels, need a new walk-around, which is a name for a... The minstrel show grew its own little uh, conventions. You know, you'd have, you'd have this kind of a... a joke interchange and then you'd have this kind of a song and then there'd be a solo number and and at the end of an act you'd have a walk around which was kind of a competitive dance where um you know everybody would dance together and sing a line and then somebody would come forward and do a series of steps then you'd sing another bar of the song and then somebody else would another few bars of the song then somebody else would come up and do a, a different step now that that is or is not an authentic that is a that's a manufactured it's pretty much i think the Scholarly consensus is it's pretty much manufactured because that remains a mat. I mean, that's how breakdance uh, competitions happen. That's I mean, that's how you see it in the few '40s Hollywood musicals that had um, you know some of these extremely talented black singers and dancers. But I think a lot of it is coming back from the minstrel show, really, into the culture, which is super weird. So it's not that's not a that's not an ancient form of like everybody like everybody standing around clapping and then somebody steps forward and does. I'm not saying it's not. It would almost right. have to be it right because be. it's such a general thing. But in the form it arrives in the minstrel show, I don't I don't know how much evidence there is that you know somebody observed. Hey, this is what um, this is what Southern blacks do around the campfire at night. You know, American culture is so fascinating because it's it messed can, up. It can. Absolutely, like develop real forms out of fake forms. Mockery turns to reality, and reality turns back to mockery. So you, so you're saying that that uh, the first B boys were these blackface artists, John? That seems a little. <laughs> That's the crazy. The B wasn't for blackface. That's terrible. No, that is terrible. Um, and so they need a new song for this. And was it Beat Street, the King of the Beat? <laughs> it was not. He wrote a song called Dixie, the first attested use of Dixie, meaning a Southern place I want to go back to. And uh, he apparently, you know, in later accounts, he didn't register the copyright when he wrote this song, not knowing it was going to be an overnight hit, which it very quickly became. It suddenly became the most popular pop song in America in like Despacito, Gangnam style fashion. Everybody's singing Dixie. Let let me ask you this. The last time I sat and really studied the lyrics of Dixie was never. Is the song written from the perspective of a freed slave who's longing for his slave home? That's what's insane. So today we mostly sing the first, like the first six lines of Dixie is all you would know. I wish I was in the land of cotton. Old times there are not forgotten. Look away, look away. Right. Then there's a second verse that you might hear. In Dixieland where I was born in early on one frosty morning. Look away, look away, look away, Dixie. And then the chorus. I wish I was in Dixie. In Dixieland, I'll take my stand to live and die in Dixie. And that's about all we know today. But as originally written, there are two changes. First, there's a whole bunch of extra verses, which are just about kind of common Southern life with kind of funny interchanges. That's true of every American song that we know. Jingle Bells has a sixth and seventh and eighth (laughs) verse about getting slapped in the face by your girlfriend. And and then a bunch of squirrels come out of the trees. Yeah, right. The the national anthem has 14 verses. A lot of them are about... uh, about how hard it is to, yeah, to make it in the make it in in the world today as a working mother. But it, the second change is that as origin as the as it was originally sung by his minstrel 
uh, performers. And then as the sheet music was published, it's in, you know, this weird white idea of Negro dialect in 1859. So as published, it's, I wish I was in the land of cotton, old times dar am not forgotten. Oh, old times dar am not forgotten. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, which, you know, you, you don't even want to, like, say this stuff today because it sounds, you know, it's a, it's a weird kind of broken stereotype of of black dialect. It's very uncomfortable sh- today. I'm not even sure how you would say it. Old times dar am not forgotten. Yeah. yeah I think you just say it in a German accent. You're, That's you're a, a lyricist. You can say, see how old times tri- on trips off I'm the not forgotten. And then subsequent verses are just kind of about slices of life. Old Mrs. Mary Wilde Weaver. Yeah. A weaver, apparently. William was a gay deceiver. So yeah. suddenly we've got two new characters, including this young upstart who's um, stealing the heart of the, of presumably uh, a, a wealthy woman. Oh, it is in dialect because they're, they're replacing V's with B's. Weber. Weber. Uh, but when he put his arm around her, smiled as fierce as a 40-pounder. 40, what is that? What's a 40-pounder? Cannon, Cannon? Cannonball? Ca- catfish. A 40-pound catfish. <laughs> sure, probably. His face was sharp as a butcher's cleaver, but that did not seem to grieve her. So, you know, there's a, there's this like romantic subplot and, but the chorus is still the same, you know, uh, I wish I was in Dixie. It's sung by somebody who's not in the South, but they're excited to go back to take their stand to live and die in Dixie. And then singing about at, at, towards the end, it gets a little, the lyrics are no longer about Mrs. A sad love affair. Dar's buckwheat cakes, an engine batter makes you fat or a little ba- uh, fatter. So homesick for Southern cooking. Yeah. Then hoe it down and scratch your gravel. To drink Dixie's land, land I'm bound to travel. That sounds. It's amazing. Agricultural. That, it's amazing they found so many words with V's in it to re- to replace with B's because that seems to be the only. That's the only thing that in the North they think that um that black dialect consists of is just D's D's and, and V's or uh, B's and V's, but also dat. Yeah. Right. And, and dar. Dat yeah. and dar. And the. Honestly, this whatever this dialect is, and you know, it's I'm sure it's based on people's experience talking to people who were speaking some kind of African American vernacular. But this persists into you know, you watch terrible black stereotypes in 30s cartoons and 40s Hollywood movies, and people are still speaking this exaggerated dat dar yeah kind of stuff with the weird consonants. But but so I always assumed that this was a rebel song, uh, swung, sung from a white perspective because of this whole make my stand, live and die kind of but originally, uh, imagery. It's very confused. It's it's not only a, apparently a slave character singing, but a slave who is no longer in the South. Right. So I guess, you know. Who wants to go down and make his stand? If you're talking about the racism baked into the song, you got to start with the fact that there's a subtext that it's sung by a free black person who, boy, wishes they were back in slavery. It's It's the epitome of that kind of Song of the South, Gone with the Wind, nostalgia for right. boy, just how good those times were on the plantation. They sure were good times. Well, you know, that's part of the that's part of the uh, the revisionism of the South, right? That the that that everyone was actually really happy. That's what these uh, that's what these kind of Mary Uncle Remus kind of uh, portrayals in the early twentieth century is kind of the unstated subtext of them, which is. You can feel a little less bad about slavery because it was just actually kind of a rosy, distant time when nothing was that bad. You know, no, th- this is a time before, like, all right, growing up our generation, we imagine LeVar Burton getting whipped. You know, we have these very visceral ideas of the cruelties of slavery because right. the media came around on this stuff after the civil rights era, but that's not how it was for 100 years. I'm trying to think, you know, in New York, there was, New York was always in the American experience, kind of a, a place apart, right? It was a place that 
because of the because of the Dutch, Dutch influence and the way that in the in the colonial era, the Virginia planters and the Boston merchants were these two separate Americas that really had nothing in common, didn't like each other, didn't really want to unite into a common country, and only did so under tremendous pressure uh, in both fighting the British and also their mutual hatred of the Scots-Irish in the mountains. Uh, but the Dutch in New York had always, you know, New York City was a, a um, was a kind of like a free state or like a like a like a city state of its own with its own values and its own kind of multiculturalism but that never not, not too different from today right and, and that's why you know new york is new york's pedigree dates you know f- far far before like the immigrant experience of the 19th century and it leads to a lot of its insularity today like this is the only city that matters right. we hate newcomers that don't understand the rhythms and the ways but you know the experience of a New York audience in the 1850s and their relationship to the dis- the, the slave dispute, the Missouri Compromise stuff that that would have been, um, you know, dividing the Congress and the dividing the nation. New York would have seen itself as apart from that too, culturally, some somehow. Hmm. And whether this idea of of freed blacks longing for the comfort of home would have played to a New York... I mean, I don't think that would have played in Boston, right? I don't think that a, that an abolitionist... You would have had some cranky minister say, wait a second. Yeah, no, that wouldn't have been popular in upstate New York. Yeah. But New York City, it could have been... Um, it could have been received very differently because because of this sort of... I don't know, this... Um, this Blade Runner vibe that, it, that the, <laughs> that city would have had even then. It might have just been lazy art. I mean... Uh, Emmett later said that it was inspired by his wife's Southern upbringing and that, you know, she was nostalgic for it. And so it may be written from the point of view of a, um, just a, of his wife. (laughs) (laughs) Sure. I mean, I I don't know if she misses the balmy South, why she's talking about being born on a frosty morning. I don't know why you'd put that in the second verse, but, but it does seem to be, maybe it's written from the point of view of a white person looking back on a bucolic Southern childhood, you know, cause it's in New York, it's also the city and the country, you know, it's not just North and South. It's like, it's, you know, the green fields of home. And the fact that it's being sung by a bunch of people with black faces, you would just chalk up to the conventions of the minstrel show. Everything in this medium is now sung by corked up white singers and dancers. But this became like a huge nationwide hit. And that's got to partly reflect the fact that at this point, and this is, again, another thing that it's often hard for us to understand, given the nature that we in the United States have of kind of being... I don't know, historyless in a way, like our history seems so short that it feels like we don't even really have to, it, it all just happened yesterday. But in 1859, there's 200 years of American history to draw on. There's all this 1859 sentimentality for 1759 yeah. that we can't really get inside, but that would have been very palpable then. Like, oh, remember back in the, back before the cotton gin uh, that, that, and, and it's 1859, so it's very clear that things are going to be changing. Yeah. Like the this could not be written at a more fraught time for the concept of southernness. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and that's exactly what happens. I mean, on on Emmett's end, for one thing, he doesn't register the copyright. You know, until like you know, it, it's a decade or or something before he doesn't. And when he finally does, 
there's already been 37 legal claims from other people who are writing it and putting out the sheet music. So he doesn't get rich from it. He gets, he gets $300. That's oh, the award he gets for writing America's Biggest Hit. And it is everywhere. And as you would imagine, it's especially beloved in the South, uh, where uh, Jefferson Davis chooses to play it at his inauguration. Oh. And so suddenly it becomes not just a symbol for the genteel old South, but of the secessionist movement. And, you know, as you know, it kind of became an informal, if not national anthem, at least kind of a marching song for the Confederate army. Uh, The Confederacy never had an official national anthem, which I didn't know. I was looking this up. There was a song they written. They didn't have time. <laughs> right. Well, they had a lot going on. You, you know, you, you, don't, you don't spend a lot of time wondering who the first secretary of the interior of the Confederacy was or, right. or who was on the, the $5 bill. We'll get to that. We'll get to that. Ken, you and I were lucky enough to get a couple of um, made-in cookware's carbon steel frying pans. And uh, they're, they're truly things of beauty, but I understand you and your chef level uh wife mindy have been uh, have been cooking with your pan yeah it's a cast iron pan so you have to uh what do they call it season it you have to season it yeah and it's easy you just put oil on it once and uh put it in the oven put it in the oven and then you're good to go it's not as uh, difficult to season as a true cast iron pan this is a this is a different kind of cast iron uh and i was really impressed mindy made kind of a like a rhubarb sauce to go with something we were eating in it and it's rhubarb rhubarb it's a and we said rhubarb rhubarb it's a very heavy pan. It, yep. it heated nice and evenly. It did great. And the best thing was it was as nonstick as a, uh, you know, a, a Teflon pan with some kind of suspicious space age coating. How cool. But it wasn't. It was just a, it was just a cast iron pan you could put in the dishwasher. It's, it, it's heavy in that it feels sturdy without being heavy like a cast iron pan that's actually like difficult to. to yeah. It, it's uh, not like it's heft. coming out of a Tudor castle uh, scullery. It, it, it just feels like a really substantial, reliable pan. What's cool about made-in cookware is that it, these are like high-quality, restaurant-quality cooking tools, but um, they've cut out the middleman to bring them, uh, to make them accessible to you and me. Uh, these are professionally, this is professional quality cookware and knives. Yeah, the knives, I guess, are really nice, fully forged, perfectly balanced, keep an edge well. Yeah. They have 28,000 plus five-star reviews. Whoa. And their that's prod- 140,000 stars. That's a lot of stars. You're so good at that. And their products are you. I mean, and by that, I mean math. Uh, their products are used by some of the world's best chefs at Michelin-starred restaurants around the world. Made in better cookware for better meals. That's madeincookware.com slash omnibus and use the promo code omnibus. There was a song written called God Save the South to the tune of God Save the Queen, which kind of has, it's, you know, like, because there was some recognition in the Southern papers, hey, the Star Spangled Banner and plus Hail Columbia and My Country Tis of the, all these patriotic songs in the moment cannot be our anthem. So they write this very militaristic God Save the South, which echoes the kind of the language of the flag still flying over the, you know, and, and the blood of the blood and the heat of battle. Um, it's got a, a lyric about how their oppressors are coming from the North who, who only want to fetter the free man to ransom the slave. Hmm. So slavery even is mentioned, but mm-hmm. as something that should, yeah, that should, uh, 
continue because the alternative would be to fetter the free man. Fetter the free man. Yeah. And it could, you know, read white man, obviously. You know, it's a, it's a militaristic society. And it's interesting that Dixie, the song is not militaristic. He does say, take my stand, but it's more like, but that's more like, I'm going to work this field till I die. It can be used to mean, and no union army is going to burn me out. Right. Which is what I always assumed. And that's what it came to mean. Yeah. Not, not probably what was on Emmett's mind in 1859. Interestingly, just as a side note, the North also had a conversation on what its national anthem should be. Oh. The Star-Spangled Banner was well accepted, but it was also from the War of 1812. which t- America's most glorious victory. I mean, today it just seems random to us that we're singing this song about one night on the War of 1812. But in, in 1860, it very much seemed like, hey, this is the last war. Right. Like, we need a new vision of America. And so there was a committee called upon to design a new national hymn, and there were conversations in the newspapers. And so both sides contemplated the new national anthem. But the South kind of landed on Dixie just because... Catchy and it's already in the charts. Catchy, you know. You, I guess you're if you're in the army, your your fife and drum corps can can play a jaunty version of it. And Emmett hated it. Emmett was a northerner. Emmett was not in favor of secession. I don't know too much about his politics, but despite the fact that he ran a super racist minstrel show, he was not like some big pro slavery or anti abolition guy. Um, you know, he said, uh, "Now that I've seen what you, roughly, uh, now that I've seen what you." St- they put the song to in the South, I'll be damned if I'd have written it. Huh. Which I don't think makes any sense. I'll be damned if I would have written it. Well, that's, again, in dialect. Yeah, he's speaking his own weird Mount Vernon, Ohio Yeah, it's dialect. just, you know, it's the dialect of people that, that wear uh, jodhpurs. There no, is, not jodhpurs. Fu- funny top hats. Yeah. Among the 37 claims about its authorship, there's a very interesting one where the scholarship didn't come out until the 90s. Um, Based on local lore in Mount Vernon, Ohio, which was Emmett's hometown to which he often went back and forth, um, you know, because he later mythologized the whole writing of it and said, you know, back as early as the 1840s, I was thinking about my wife's southern roots. And, you know, he created this whole kind of mythology about it when asked, because his life didn't go well after this. Right. He's he, still still trying to make a dollar off of it. And he's like, what if I just romanticize He's a one hit wonder. Yeah. I guess he, he later, at the beginning of the Civil War, he felt, you know, as part of feeling bad about Dixie and, of you know, writing the hit song of 1859, he was asked to write the, like the fife and drum marching manual for union troops, which he did. Oh. So a lot of the, the the songs you would have heard in the field were arranged by Emmett and published in his in his little chat book or whatever. But but he didn't do that Sufjan Stevens thing where he then started writing uh, song cycles about all the different regions. Uh, yeah. <laughs> what am I going to say about Upper the Dakotas? Peninsula. He got about as far as Sufjan did. He did one region, yeah. and then he was like, eh, this seems a like idea. a lot of work. And then later he said it was a prank. Uh, but, uh, the mythologization, the mythology of it kind of worked because people did believe all these kind of wistful romantic remembrances of him. And as late as the 1940s, I think there was a movie made where Bing Crosby plays Dan Emmett, the man who wrote Dixie, you know, kind of banging his head against the desk and one night inspiration comes or whatever. Um, that's how you write a great song, by the way. But well, it it seems like he just wrote it the night before. Does that work too? Yes. (laughs) The night before the show? Oh, I thought you were about to write something, but that's just Dixie. Yeah, well, no. I thought you were a great sure? songwriter, John, but you're just whistling Dixie. No, see, Dixie goes, dun, 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 dun. And I went, dun, 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 dun. <laughs> I, was, I was on a um, like a Zoom call this week playing like a, a little uh, 
Jeopardy-like quiz show for a corporate event. Uh-huh. And uh, I had warned Sell them, out. I had warned them, hey, this PowerPoint you've found somewhere just says Jeopardy everywhere and you, you haven't licensed that. So just, just so you know. So by the time we actually did the thing, Jeopardy had been papered over with this thing that said like Ken Jennings trivia show in Helvetica. Uh-huh. But then every time they played the Jeopardy music, they had found some public domain version of it that goes up instead of down once a measure. So it's like, da, 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 da. So it's just kind of like. That sounds terrible. Like, yeah, the, the, on some auto-tuned version of the Jeopardy theme so they don't get sued. And it was, uh, it was, it was your, like your version of Dixie. I'm going to sue them just to keep my hand in. But the most interesting claim, as I was going to say about Emmett's authorship of uh, Dixie, came in the 1990s. Uh, an author named Judith Sachs, I think, and her husband, I think it's a husband and wife team, wrote a book claiming that the song had actually been written by the Snowdens, a super popular family of black musicians from Mount Vernon, Ohio. Whoa. Um, and apparently that there's local lore to that effect to the degree that is in the mid seventies, the local black chapter of the American Legion put up a tombstone for the Snowdens, saying they taught, or, you know, one of them, he taught Dan Emmett Dixie. So in local lore, Emmett was just ripping off this popular band. It was a, Family that had come north uh, in the 1850s and settled in Ohio. They had six kids, all of whom formed a band, and you know, one played the dulcimer and one played the banjo, and you know, and so forth. Well, now, how does that change the song if it turns out it was actually written by a black family of traveling musicians and then reappropriated and then reappropriated and then reappropriated? It's super interesting, <laughs> right? Um, there, there's plenty of, uh, the Snowdens left plenty of uh, their published work behind. We have letters from the mom to the kids. So we know quite a bit about them. Um, they were celebrities. Uh, we know from their work that they did not use uh, what would have been considered this Negro dialect in their work. They were careful not to go into that kind of stereotyping. So mm-hmm. we can infer from some kind of actual, you know, sense of dignity and family pride that we don't go for that. So if their version of, uh, if they wrote the original version, then Emmett changed all the consonants. Emmett would have been, (laughs) right, looked for Vs. But they also, interestingly, never wrote a song about any kind of, there's no politics either. There's nothing about abolitionism or about the tensions between the North and the South. Or the South at all. Right. So they were trying to keep clear of that kind of, you know, they're trying to play the Stone Mountain thing where they're, they're kind of, they want to make a go of it in a world of white musicians, but they also, you know, don't want to be this Jim Crow-like caricature. Right. Um, the problem with this book is there doesn't, you're right, it would totally change things if Emmett had heard an actual black folk song and tweaked it and put it in his minstrel show. The book, unfortunately, is not that convincing. Uh-huh. The, the evidence all seems to be very circumstantial. It's more, uh, we know Emmett went home three times, at least three times in this five-year period, the Snowdens would have been, uh, you know, within a mile away. They were both well-known musicians. It stands to reason. We can only imagine. It's possible that the book is full of qualifiers like right. that. But there's no, there's no, there's no smoking gun. No record of them ever having performed. There, there's no it. version of one of their songs that's similar. Yeah, right. The, the book even kind of indulges in literary analysis, like going through D- Dixie line by line and, line and saying, now that we know the Snowdens wrote it, it's clear what these this stuff all means. I see. And it's just not that convincing. But the interesting thing is as, you know, as we get into the 1860s and Dixie kind of becomes the de facto marching song of the South, it's still insanely popular in the North. Um, 
At the end of James Buchanan's administration, it was played at his last party in the White House. Uh, you know, at a time when everybody was like, "Ha ha, the you know the house is falling." <laughs> um, he's just playing Dixie in the in the East Room. And it was when Lincoln came into the White House, it didn't change because Lincoln loved it. Lincoln loved the song Dixie. He's got Kentucky roots. Right. You know, it probably spoke to him, this idea of a, you know, bucolic, sunny South. Um, it's undeniably catchy. And uh, it, it was one of his favorite songs and he loved it. It was in 1864, it was used for the McClellan campaign against Lincoln. And by that time, it had kind of lost favor for political reasons like if you're what well, today we would call political correctness reasons. Like if you're on the right side of the discussion on secession and abolition, you do not want to play. Well, Dixie. yeah, it's become the, it's become the anthem of your enemy. Like the, like it's become a war song. Imagine a world where the Nazis just start playing a boogie woogie bugle boy right. for a while. The Andrews sisters would still be touring, <laughs> but like if the Nazis keep playing boogie woogie bugle boy at some point, uh, Americans are like, well, we don't play that anymore. Well, that's so interesting. And we're, we're living in a time now when when uh, everyone is seizing on on iconography in order to brand their their you know weird little brand of the world, right? Like the I the guy, the guy drove by me in a truck the other day with the Blue Lives Matter flag flying, and it's like, huh, okay, you know, sure, like like uh, oh, it's Pride Week right now, or Pride Week is coming up, and there are. Six hundred pride flags, because every you know every iteration yeah. of the of the uh, of the rainbow now represents a different universe. I, of course, as you know, love Aloha shirts, but those were appropriated by the by the Boogaloo Boys. There and, was the guy on Jeopardy that got in trouble for doing a sign that looked a little like the fake sign that 4chan made up and said was for white supremacists, but then actual white nationalists started using it so it is kind of tainted but then it turned out he was just saying that i won the game three times that's what he was saying um and so in this moment uh 1864 1863 where is dixie it's like a, a the sheet music is on everyone's piano the the president loves the tune but it's also yeah it's like it's, it's like it's like, like what they're what they were playing on their fife when they shot your brother right in tennessee it's like being in the on the shores of Tripoli and singing the Marine Corps hymn. <laughs> so the North has a solution. It's not the musical term would be contrafactum, hmm. setting um, an existing tune, setting new lyrics to an existing tune. It's like trying to uh, rewrite "God Save the Queen." Pretty much, yeah. It's uh, yeah. God, God, Save, God the Save the South is an yeah. example of a contrafactum. Every Weird Al record has six or seven contrafacta. Uh, it, you know, it's it's older than that. Like a lot of the Christmas, it was not unusual to uh, notice that a new poem had the same uh, meter and form as an existing hymn, and then you would s just sing the poem to the old hymn, or you'd find out the two hymns shared a form, and then you could sing one to the well, other. Yeah, the ABC song is, is "Twinkle Twinkle Little Star," is "Bob Bob Black Sheep," "Pop Pop Goes the Weasel." They're all the it same. It happens song. with a lot of uh, not "Pop Goes the Weasel." That's we a are the song. we are the world. Girls just want to have fun. They're all the same song. Yeah, that's right. It happened with Christmas carols a lot. You know, What Child Is This is just green sleeves. I think we still sing, maybe Hark the Herald Angels sing to a hymn that used to be better known as a different hymn. And this is actually has happened in America before. You know, Green Man Alishi was by, was by Fleetwood Mac, and then it became <laughs> a big hit for Judas Priest. 
uh, Blurred Lines was a Marvin Gaye song. <laughs> like uh, in the, and this has happened in American history famously with like Yankee Doodle. Right. Which was a song that the British soldiers sang to make fun of the, of the bumpkin sure. Yankees. And then we tweaked a few lyrics. I say we because I was a super yeah, patriotic colonist. You're, you're an American. <laughs> you know, we tweaked a few of the lyrics and suddenly we were, you know, proudly singing Yankee Doodle, but, you know, without the part about how we, we poop in the pool or whatever. Yeah, poop, right. poop in the pond. We call it macaroni and, and, and we do it with pride. And the same thing happened in the Civil War time with John Brown's body. That was actually a super popular revival hymn. But um, 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 and then it got these kind of very militant, visceral abolitionist lyrics set to them, became a huge hit, and it actually offended some of the blue bloods who were like, "That's such a great hymn, but why do we have to sing about moldering bodies? This is very uncouth." And by some accounts, it was Lincoln himself that told Julia Ward Howe, "Well, why don't you write a new hymn that uses those lyrics?" And that's where Battle Hymn of the Republic came from. So there's a tradition in America of just writing new politically palatable lyrics if you if you like the tune but not the message. Right. And that's what happens with Dixie. So before the war, different versions start circulating that are no longer about taking a stand in the South, which is now a problematic point of view. So in, And a lot of them are written from explicitly Northern anti-secession points of view. As our fathers crushed oppression... Deal with those who breathe secession. Then away, then away, then away to the fight. Oh, boo. Not good. Really sucks. You know, Battle Hymn of the Republic is a way better song than John Brown's Body. Yeah. Uh, it, I mean, that's a that's a killer. And that was written at the same time, right? Middle of the Civil War. Sure. Oh, those lyrics. And, and, but it was for the same reason. John yeah. Brown's Body had just become a huge abolitionist hit. Right. And Julia Ward Howe did not like the idea that we would sing about somebody rotting in the grave because you. Ooh, I, I agree. Ooh, Julia Wardhouse didn't like Tales from the Crypt on HBO, but, but she hated uh, all those puns. But I'm gonna I'm gonna come right out and say that uh, the Union rewrite of Dixie is no good. Well, there are better ones, so that's a first attempt. Okay, you're gonna hate this one more. Let others pray. This this one's more of a Weird Al kind of keep the rhyme, but like <laughs> twist the meaning. Mm-hmm. Let others praise the land of cotton, and then unfortunately, N-word slaves and treason rotten. Hmm. So it's on the right side. It's saying treason is bad in the land of cotton, but also it was fairly acceptable for anti-secession Northerners to refer to slaves with the N-word. Right. And, uh, you know, it may be a Frederick Douglass is in the room. He's like, hey, hey, hey. But it was it was just a common way for these yeah. people who would never see a slave to, to refer to black people. Right. Um, that one, thankfully, did not catch on. The most famous one, it's pretty good, I think. I guess I'll leave it to you and our listeners to decide. Are you going to sing it or just read it? Um, I kind of want you to sing it. Would you like to sing it? I, I that, don't that would sing it. That requires me to remember the me- the um, the melody of Dixie. Thank you. It was, um, unfortunately, the authorship is anonymous. Modern scholars believe it must have been published in a songster, yeah. which was like a little um, like a little pamphlet that was given to the troops. With like, you know, for a penny, you hear some new songs to sing around the campfire. To the tune of Dixie, and then it's got some fun new lyrics. Away down south in the land of traitors, rattlesnakes and alligators. <laughs> Get them! They already got them, right? Get em. It's not hospitable anymore. No. It's not just rolling fields and cotton. No. It's like well, this is something to you know awful reptiles over through the through the mist. You hear your enemy singing Dixie. And then you and come then back. And then you come back with this. You zing them. Yeah. You hear uh, 
what, like a virgin, and you come back with like a surgeon. Mm -hmm. Like a sturgeon. Or, you know, somebody, basically the modern equivalent would be a teacher, a music class teacher trying to sing Jingle Bells and every boy in the class singing Batman Smells right. and Robin laid an egg. So go on. So Right away, come away, right away, come away. I don't love that. It's not that good. This is good. Where cotton's king and men are chattels. Union boys will win the battles. Yeah. Oh, Up yours. So not only is it, um, you know, so Cotton's King, that's like, uh, hey, uh, your whole society is built on cloth, you losers. Right. But also men are chattels. You know, it really gets to the right there, the, the founding sin of, of Southern agrarianism. Union boys will win the battles. Come away, right away, right away, come away. We'll all go down to Dixie. So the chorus really lends itself because, you know, famously, these are sung by soldiers who are marching through Dixie. Yeah. This is good. Each Dixie boy must understand that he must mind his Uncle Sam. Oh, wow. So, so now so a little bit in your face. Disobedient children who need to be spanked. It's got a little bit of an S&M thing creeping into it. Um, I wish I was in Baltimore. I guess at the time, Baltimore would be part of the... Maryland being a border state. Yeah, it would have been a... It, it would have been par considered part of the rebellion. I wish I was in Baltimore. I'd make secessionist. Tr I'd make secession traders roar. Wish I was in Baltimore. I'd make secession traders roar. It'd be a little better if it were like Richmond or Savannah, but you know, yeah. for the meter, it's, I guess it's got to be Baltimore. Baltimore is a lot closer to Washington D.C. than. Savannah. Oh, that's true. So yeah. maybe you think of that as the immediate threat. Yeah. Those, those are the people right across the river. Right away, come away. Right away, come away. We'll put the traders all to rout. I'll bet my boots will whip them out. I, I wish it wasn't just right away, come away, right away, come away. Yeah, it needs it needs a little bit better of a hook. But you can hear, I mean, and deeper into the lyrics now, you can really hear the troops actually looking at their little songster pamphlets trying to figure out, you know, by candlelight, like what the lyrics are, because it's getting a little little tortured, but... the So, and the third, the third verse is, continues that trend, but it really calls to mind the lyrics of the Star Spangled Banner, which even though the Northern papers were saying was maybe passe, apparently still very much in the, the hearts of the boys in blue. Oh, oh, may our stars and stripes still wave forever roar the free and brave right away, come away, right away, come away. And let our motto forever be for union and for liberty. Right away, come away, right away, come away. So it, it repurposes and the Star Spangled Banner proudly shall wave, you know, just the last two lines of the national anthem. It never occurred to me, but maybe... It was the Civil War that enshrined the Star Spangled Banner as our national anthem because that was your chance to rewrite it or to come up with a new song. And, and it if, didn't happen. And it didn't happen. And probably Star Spangled Banner got sung a lot. And by the end of that war, it had, be, it had, it had, uh, there had been some transference. And now the song meant something new to a new generation. And famously, there's more national identity after the war. You know, before the war, people identify as Pennsylvanian or, or, uh, or Virginian. Virginian, yeah, yeah, to give an example on either side. And after the war, it was more like, I mean, the example Shelby Foote gives is grammatical. You Before, you would say the United States are instead of the United States is. So, And that happened at, at the end of the war? It, yeah, we, th that's a change from like 1855 to 1870. Huh. So... I could see the the idea of a national anthem being more valuable then too, because the country has now been forged as a unified whole. Well, oh, oh, and another thing, in reforging it as a union, you wouldn't be able to have a national anthem that was rewritten at any point during the conflict. It'd have to be, we were all against the British in the War of 1812. Remember those good times? Yeah, it would have to go back to, to, the, uh, to the earlier, higher form. 
That's really more in line with, you know, the Lincoln idea, which is, you know, we have to bring everybody back in so the country can be unified now under, you know, we're not an anti-Southern nation anymore. What do we all agree on? Union, liberty, and so forth. Right. Um, Lincoln continued to love Dixie through the war. Uh, when word... Did he like this new version? Did he sing the... It's, he's not on record li- <laughs> singing the Mad Magazine version. Like a light bulb. Uh, but when news reached Washington of Lee's surrender at Appomattox, um, Lincoln gave a little speech on the White House balcony. In fact, it was the last his last public appearance because he was shot at Ford's Theater, what, like a week later or something? Yeah. And he instructed the band to play Dixie. And since then, there's been a lot of historians, you know, opining that, you know, what a what a kind gesture of welcome. This was the tone that would have been set in a second Lincoln administration toward Reconstruction. And but in fact, uh, the the many of the Northern papers printed his remarks. And what he said was basically, here's a song Charles Manson stole from the Beatles. We're stealing it back. He actually says. Um, uh, this is, you know, effectively, this is the spoils of war. The South tried to take Dixie from us, and uh, we have now seized it as part of our rightful victory. Uh, band, Marine Band, play Dixie. Wow, we get the song back. We get the song back. And uh, I so feel that way about my Hawaiian shirts. At the, I guess. I get them back. Lincoln, uh, you know, so went to his grave loving Dixie, which we now think of as the song that stands against everything he was for. In, but how much of that is a product of the sort of um, the way that Dixie has been used from 1920 to the present? To the present, yeah. I think our idea, you know, you and I being Generation X has only heard a version of a Dixie that postdates its controversies in the 20th century. Like in the 1960s, um, you know, of course it was super common for the marching bands at Southern football schools to play it. and UVA and Tulane and Georgia Tech all started getting protests, you know, like they started when po- post civil rights era, late so late 60s. Yeah. These schools are all integrated now. They've got black student organizations who are like, "Hey, like there's black people on the team and the band is still playing like Dixie about the land of cotton. Come right. on, you know." And so one by one these schools removed Dixie from their marching band repertoires. It's funny, I remember hearing Dixie a lot in the 1970s and and 80s as just a part of the sort of casual Americana, right? Where where it was, you know, we're talking about like- Looney Tunes, right? They would run Looney Tunes on Saturday morning. So you're you're getting kind of an echo of of 40s and 50s America where Bugs Bunny would be picking a banjo and singing Dixie. But you know that- that Were you hearing it in commercials? No, it's like the Dukes of Hazzard era of sort of that version of Southern Rehabilitation where- I mean that it was a, it was literally their car horn. Smokey and the Bandit. I've I've never wanted I've never wanted a really long loud you know melodic car horn like, like that cuz it seems like it would just go on too long. You don't want your horn to still be playing like cucaracha like 4 seconds after the the thing to signal has passed, right? Uh as late as 1999 Chief Justice Rehnquist had like a weekend. It was his ringtone. <laughs> <laughs> Almost, he had a weekend getaway where people would sing folk songs around the fire, and uh, Dixie was sung around the fire. And a lot of the African American lawyers at this convention were like, "No, you know, like this is it's for a black audience. The song is viscerally tainted in a way that it is not for you and I watching 
Dukes of Hazard and um, Bugs Bunny, where it kind of seems quaint and old timey. The same way that you know, as a kid, I would be like, "Yeah, I'm zippity doodah. What's what's racist about that?" Well, but yeah, it's a well, little I mean, different when you're watching a when if you're imagining a black audience watching this kind of paternalistic. The Wonderful World of Disney played Song of the South uh, on on television until. I mean, I definitely watched it on on like network television. They until re they the re released 80s. it in like eighty four, which is why Splash Mountain, until a recent remodel, was full of Song of the South characters because they were capitalizing on the fact that in nineteen eighty four, it was still uh, kind of palatable to a general American (parenthesis largely white) audience. Rinquist is from Wisconsin, so he's just he's just being difficult. Maybe. I mean, he was kind of eccentric, but it's also, I think he's, he's part of a generation that just thinks of it as. Yeah. Part of American folk. I'm a pre-civil life. rights guy and, uh, nobody's going to tell me that Dixie's bad. It's the same thing we have today. Like what? I'd done this my whole life. Nobody's going to tell me that it's bad now to say this word or this kind of joke or, you know, you just kind of assume that your your childhood milieu there's something perfect and protected about it and how dare they ask me to do anything different well if you think about the if you think about the night they drove old dixie down by the band i didn't think about that um you know that's a version of that's a song written by written by and sung by canadians levon helm the only american in the band right and i guess i guess written by canadians sung by the one american uh that's kind of that's doing that 1970s um, romanticizing of the South as a, as like a rock place, the Leonard Skinnerd Alabama 38 special version of American rock and roll that came out of the, um, the, you know, it's the, it's the country rock thing and the way that it overlapped with that rise of the, or, you know, the South will rise again. It connoted authenticity, but it did so at a time when the civil rights era had a different narrative about what's authentic about the South. Yeah. And, and, and whatever that collision was, I think I, you still see in a lot of the, uh, in contemporary reflection on the South, a lot of it seems to be from, you know, from white dudes in pickup trucks referencing the 1970s and eighties idea of what was cool about <laughs> right. the South. Right. I mean, so many, so, so much of that iconography is, really just trying to get more Dodge Chargers going on the streets. And by that time, it's a South that has not been like emptied of its black culture, but has been, you know, has seen a massive migration. So it becomes easier for your default idea of a Southerner to be a good old boy in a pickup. Right. When, you know, what would have been popular, you know, cities full of, of, uh, of African-Americans and their culture and their neighborhoods is all, it's all in Detroit pick, picked now. up and moved to Lansing and Pittsburgh. Yeah. yeah. Do you know the lyrics of the night they drove old Dixie down? I do. We used to perform it. So I had no idea. Like I could sing the the na na nas, but the core it's it's very explicitly about a town finding out that Robert E. Lee has surrendered and the trauma of it, and, and the the massive trauma of it. And it's you know it's written from the perspective of a of a young guy whose older brother died in the war and you know made the ultimate ultimate sacrifice. And nowhere does Robbie comment and say, obviously. Uh, we're for the Yankees here because that's not the point of point of view of the song. No, they're not for the Yankees. You know, his his father uh, his father before him worked the land, and his brother above him took a rebel stand. So it's 
completely unreformed. Rebel Stand. That's that. Those lyrics are right out of Dan Emmett. Yeah, or whoever wrote it. Right, and and then of course the famous refrain from from Dan Emmett. Na 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 na. When it comes to lyrics, you really cannot beat na 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 na. Well, and that's the thing, you know. His brother was laid in his grave by a Yankee, and there's Yankee is in the tune, um, but he swears by the mud below his feet that that uh, you can't raise a cane back up when he's in defeat. And that concludes Union Dixie. Entry 1368.EZ2046, certificate number 27330 in the Omnibus. Futurelings in the unlikely event that social media still exists in your era, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram are archived at, at Omnibus Project. You can find Ken Jennings on the internet at Ken Jennings. And you will be hard-pressed to find me on the internet at John Roderick, although you can find me at patreon.com slash John Roderick. I was saying you're like one of those servers that has an air gap. Like, I can tell you something, and I know it cannot get on the internet. That's right. You can tell me all your secrets, and and you don't have to say, like, um, don't post this, because it's like, I'm not going to post Where it. Where would I? I, yeah, I don't even it. have a connection. I post it on my, my, own, on my own discourse. You have uh, your own little home website. server. I do. My own server. People and no have, one... people have to come, your neighbors have to come in and plug an Ethernet connection in <laughs> if they want to read your blog. But then people, you know, people from my, uh, from my discourse could, they also tend to, well, no, they're not all on the internet. Most of them now are just inside our little, our little tended garden. <laughs> um, you can find us via email at the omnibus project at gmail.com. You can email us things there. You can email us corrections and tell us about your experiences with Noam Chomsky. Um, you can support our show. That is omnibus at patreon.com slash omnibus project. We are a, uh, an audience funded program and, uh, funding us or rather, uh, donating to the show contributing to the show. Let's call it that. It's not a donation. It's a contribution. Supporting the show. Supporting the show at patreon.com slash omnibus project has a lot of advantages for you, a lot of benefits, and it enables us to make the show independent of corporate overlords. We don't have to do any Budweiser uh, product placements. It would be so fun if you've thought about supporting the show and you're always like, yeah, I should do that sometime. Do it right now. You'll feel so good. High five. Um, you can find other futurelings who are uh, who are supportive of the show and like discussing its topics and and many um, the many threads derived from which thus wherewithal at uh, at anywhere that you Google the word futurelings you will find an omnibus futureling waiting for your attention specifically the Facebook page but there's also a subreddit and uh, there's your here's your Gary's Van Discord. Yeah, lots of places. They're all out there and you can find them and they will rejoice to find you. And you can mail us actual things uh, at P.O. Box 55744, Shoreline, Washington, 98155. I just, I'm, I just opened a note from Ryan, for example, who sent this to the P.O. Box. He enjoys when we mention one of his three hometowns on the show, Akron, Ohio, Portland, Oregon, or Fort Wayne, Indiana. Huh. We we tend to mention all three of those. He notices that, and he yeah. feels very connected to the show when we they happen to come up. He's fascinated with infinity, and in fact has written poems about space and time, and in looking for an anniversary gift for a partner, he found these infinity-related pins, and he sent us each one. 
Hmm. Uh, this is a Hilbert Hotel pin. It is. It's a. It looks like a picture of Wes Anderson's Grand Budapest Hotel, but it says, "Welcome to the Grand Hilbert Hotel." N N plus one. Uh huh. No vacancy, but we can move some people around. Those are fun. Yeah, that's fun. Are they? Are they both the same? Do we have the same pin? Yes. Oh, that's nice. Put that right on your on your jean jacket, Ken. You sent us a finite number of these, and it really would have been funnier to have an infinite number. Yes. Send us a Hilbert package full of these. Listeners, from our vantage point in your distant past, we have no idea how long our civilization survived. We hope and pray that the catastrophe we fear may never come, but if the worst comes soon, this recording, like all our recordings, may be our final word. And then we'll never get to a history of the stringed instrument. Which is a bummer. Oh. I hope it doesn't. No, no, no. The Time is a flat circle. We've already done it. We've already done history of the stringed instrument. We but just if, don't know it yet. If Providence allows, John, we hope to be back with you soon for another entry in the army.